Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I am very excited about this morning's guest. Um, his name is Asher Crisp. And just to be a little transparent, I work with Asher, with Ben Kinsley and others on Campaign for Vermont. But Asher is a technology futurist. We're going to talk about what that is. He consults with companies and organizations, including Beko Management, LifeRight, Mersive Studio, and Campaign for Vermont. He focuses, this, listen to this. He focuses on advancing in AI, robotics, biotech, ag tech, Neuroscience, organizational philosophy, oh, psychology, I can't even read it, and the experience economy. And we're friends. Asher, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pat. It's wonderful to be on. Well, and an amazing, you have such an amazing background. I have been wanting to talk to you um, since we started working together in Campaign for Vermont, and I have my opportunity now, a captive audience, for one hour. Wonderful. That's great. I, I, I'm all excited to be here. <laughs> That's great. So, listen, um, I was going to ask a question about AI, um, which we hadn't talked about. But first, let's start with what is a futurist? Yeah, but I, I get that a lot. A lot of people want to know <laughs> what exactly a futurist is. So I, I often tell people, half jokingly, that I'm an amateur time traveler. <laughs> uh, and that I prefer trips to like three, five years into the future. Um, but actually, futurists sort of like survey trends that are happening in the world today, um, especially trends that are nonlinear or exponential. We, we, our, our brains tend to think about little incremental st- steps of improvement and not these huge leaps that are happening all the time. So, you know, if you add a penny a day for 30 days, you have 30 pennies. But if you double a penny a day, for 30 days, you're going to get up to, uh, you know, $10 million in pennies <laughs> by doubling. And, uh, yeah, that's a great a great deal. You can tell someone, you know, you can either write me a check right now for a million dollars or you can give me a penny today and two pennies tomorrow and, and do that for a month. And um, they'll end up owing you $10 million at the end of that time. Hmm. Uh, so we, our brains are just not attuned to those types of trends. Uh, so I'm also a generalist, and that means that we look very, very broadly to be like a lighthouse and not a laser beam at things that are happening uh, in very different fields, but where there's going to be some overlap and synergy um, to try to predict uh, with some accuracy emergent trends and uh, opportunities um, in many of these technological uh, uh, sectors. That's that's really great. I I was hoping that you could give us a little example of uh, how you how you approach problems. I guess as a futurist, you did an article for um, Campaign for Vermont, which is on the website. It's called "Fueling Vermont Tourism," which I thought was such an amazing article. Could you? I, I guess that's a good example of of what of how you approach topics and and how this article came out to be so interesting and fascinating. Yeah, so if we just take a a very general uh, glance at the history of work over time, for so long, uh, people, you know, were were compelled to do very limited types of jobs in order to get by. Uh, Almost all of us were farmers. 
<laughs> and slowly through the emergence of technology, uh, less and less people needed to be involved in farming, perhaps too few now for Vermont's taste. And, uh, and uh, that's a separate question that we'd have to get into. But it's been easier for, for more and more to be accomplished in that area with less. And, and now we've seen the same thing happen in manufacturing with lots of uh, automation that's going on. And the area that is booming and likely to grow by leaps and bounds in the near future is what we call the experience economy. Hmm. People have more flexibility, more mobility uh, than ever before. Uh, and that's not just people here in the United States, it's people all over the world. So they want to go places and do things. And Vermont is a captivating place. Uh, I'm a ninth generation Vermonter, and I always thought the Vermont landscape and our, our uh, idyllic little villages with their historic character um, are a real attraction. And on top of that, um, we're seeing that part of the experience economy is trying to get away from uh, commodified products uh, that people have, where you can just have machines bang out a million of something and they're all the same. People are starting to see a resurgence of craft. And Vermont is filled with people who enjoy and uh, uh, express themselves in craft. And then it's just a matter of, like, finding these things. Um, we're in an age where, uh, unfortunately, there's so many choices of what to do on a given day. We kind of need um, technology sometimes to give us a little bit of an itinerary and to think about what would be an interesting adventure today and how could that connect me to different small villages, different uh, tr uh, crafts, different experiences here in Vermont, and what would that be like for boosting Vermont as a wonderful place for people to go and to experience? Um, and I would just say, finally, that the the big challenge in today's day and age is GPS. <laughs> Everyone's using Waze or some other navigation system to get from point A to point B, and it's all about transportation, and most of the time we don't even look up because we're kind of like following our, our computer screens as we get to the shortest route from A to B. But back in the day when you had to navigate with map, maps, which many digital natives don't remember this, <laughs> uh, you, you could get lost, but there was like a, a kind of uh, enchanting quality of getting lost in a place like Vermont. You go down a, a dirt road somewhere that you never expected. You saw a beautiful farm. You went down an, another another lane, and suddenly you were at a antique shop. Um, we we need to take people uh, from transportation back to wayfaring, which is the true immersion in a landscape and in a place to experience it fully. And now technology is perhaps giving us the ability to do that as well, if we uh, if we want it. Ugh, that's a lot to digest, Asher. Um, I also uh, wrote a note that you teach and lecture in Jewish centers and academic institutions around the world, pretty much. Um, some of your lectures have focused on music, films, architecture, gender theory, psychology, education, economics, and regenerative medicine and physics. So uh, I would like to talk about regenerative medicine and I'll come back to it, but but could you share with us what you did this weekend, which was very impressive? Um, well, so besides being a technology futurist, I'm also a rabbi um, <laughs> and I often try to merge antiquity and modernity, uh, like, uh, you know, a Jewish religious thought with um, the latest that's happening in the in the world of science. 
Um, and to that end, I uh, I was sort of like a guest speaker for uh, the Shabbatai Society at Yale University um, over the weekend. Um, I spoke a little bit about the age of prediction, how uh, so many people are risk adverse. They don't want to mm. uh, start, get a job, you know, start their own company or don't know which job to get or, or who, to, who to marry or even who to speak to half the time because there's so much uncertainty surrounding those experiences. So um, we spoke a little bit about um, the history of prediction and risk, and there's almost like a continuum in historical thought between what in, in a, a, a Hebraic biblical context would be called divination and someone who tries to plot out and predict uh, with algorithms today with certainty what their life is going to be like, because we can't necessarily tame reality uh, to the fullest extent. We can make some progress in it, but there's always going to be an element of surprise. And that's actually wonderful. That's uh, enchanting when there's some surprise in our lives. Surprises are good. So Asher, I was right trying to get in touch with him over the weekend, and he got uh, back to me last night. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I was away this weekend teaching at Yale. And I went, oh, that's not what I was doing. But... Um, I think that must have been a great experience, not only for you, but for the folks you were you were talking to and um, and presenting some of your ideas. So, tell me a little bit, Asher, about regenerative medicine and um, its place in the future. So, first of all, we have to appreciate that uh, all medical knowledge is now uh, accelerating so incredibly quickly because it's been married to information technologies. Uh, Kevin Kelly, who's himself uh, a technology futurist, said that already we've surpassed the, the, the point where we double all biomedical knowledge every 73 days compared to human history. Um, and that's allowing us to see with unprecedented clarity what's going on um, inside the body. And we're starting to think of the body as uh, constructed out of information, series of instructions that you can read, write, copy, uh, reproduce. And since your body knew how to grow, it, grow itself originally, uh, uh, all the instructions are, are in there to how to, how to regrow itself. It would be like uh, if an automobile knew how to make its own replacement parts. Um, and it's just a matter of learning the, the grammar, the syntax, the spelling of that information, and we can sometimes prompt the body then to regenerate. And um, we've seen this in nature. We've learned a lot of this from looking out in nature. This book came out recently called Jellyfish Age Backwards. Um, and there's actually species of jellyfish that can, re- they're functionally immortal, and they can reverse age. It's like saying at 60, I'd like to be 20 again, you know. Uh, and so th- there's a series of genetic instructions that like allow that to happen in a jellyfish. And we've, we've copied that code and we've already demonstrated, um, with certain cell types in the human body that it's possible to do that. Um, so imagine being in, in, in one's nineties and then having the skin of an 18 year old. Mm. Um, so we've, we've proved a lot of this out, uh, today and there are, uh, uh, Many people working in regenerative medicine, they're realizing that we're beginning to arrest aging uh, and uproot disease in ways that were inconceivable just a few years ago, and that perhaps that's going to give us not only radical life extension, but a kind of precision medicine, which will lead to health extension as well. 
Cool. I like that uh, example of the 90-year-old with the teenage uh, skin. I'm, I'm 80. Maybe we could work something out <laughs> because it does get older as you get older. I've sort of noticed. Um, but anyway, um, so you have on uh, the web a videotaped uh, – you did a series of eight lessons, which I've actually reviewed. I'm going to go back and listen to them specifically because – they were fascinating, and they're called Globalization and the End of Work, which that caught my attention as well. Um, and in the first, the first video is a, is a series that's focusing on, I'm reading this, on concrete examples of how, in many ways, we are already living in a utopian future and stressing the importance of the trend towards a globalized innovation economy. Could you explain that sentence? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's so hard for us to remember history. <laughs> we have, most people kind of live in the nearly now of what happened in the last 15 minutes. But, you know, I live in a 1795 Vermont farmhouse. Oh. And if you go back to when my house was built, the amount of time in time prices to get the equivalent of a 100-watt white bulb was an extraordinary number of hours, <laughs> like, hmm. unbelievable number of hours to produce what we get from a 100-watt light bulb. Now we take it for granted that these are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Even people below the poverty line sometimes have or very often have access to 100-watt light bulbs, right? And so the, the time price of that has come down to a, a, an almost negligible amount and continues to fall, Right. So what, what what happens when what would have taken you, let's say, hundreds of hours can now be produced in in seconds. Right. Same thing with food. We've always talked about, uh, you know, feast and famine cycles, but a lot of famine, a lot of uh, food insecurity. And that still exists in the world. But it's not because of a lack of production. Um, we actually produce today four thousand five hundred calories for every single human being on the planet. <laughs> which I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, that's that's more than double the amount of food an individual needs to sustain themselves in a healthy way, right. um, which is actually making obesity for the first time a much larger issue globally than huh. food uh, insecurity. Oh, that's um, so interesting. Politics, yeah. yeah. So these are some of the things that I'm, I'm referring to, recognizing that we are really hitting into an age of abundance, um, and more people can access things that were inconceivable uh, in the past. Like in the 1600s, one of the largest private libraries um, in Europe was some 6,000 volumes. Now you can regularly access like millions and millions of books uh, 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 via Google and other other resources with like a few clicks of uh, the keyboard. Right. So these are these are the kind of examples that we're talking about. Obviously, like there's still more to do. But um, if you make comparisons, life has become transformed. Hmm. That is uh, it's really it's so interesting. And I I would encourage people to go back and take a look at at these videos because they're fabulous. Um, I I you had on one of the screens a, a comment that said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. I bet a lot of people would agree with that, Asher. Yes. So the the one of the founding fathers of the sci-fi cyberpunk genre, William Gibson, uh, who influenced the uh, Matrix movies that uh. came out a number of years, people may know. Um, he, he said that quote, and and that's exactly right. There is such a enormous 
leap between what's happening like in the lab and what, uh, you know, a certain groups of elite scientists have access to and perhaps what the average person is experiencing, although the world is getting flatter in certain regards because now you have people in sub-Saharan Africa that have access to, to you know, smartphones that are uh, pretty ubiquitous for the first time, and, and that's giving them uh, more access to information than when Bill Clinton had uh, was president of the United States. So uh, it's not quite uh, there for everyone, but adoption rates are are uh, happening at ever quicker intervals. Just consider, you know, like 100 million people using ChatGPT within a week. Um, the ability to scale up and to produce things at scale so that the whole world can enjoy some of these uh, advantages and breakthroughs that are happening is is becoming ever more apparent. But it's not evenly distributed. So of course, we see uh, inequalities of wealth and access to some of these things that are tremendous, but um, it's moving in that direction in, in very profound ways. I think that's, that's good to hear for sure, um, because the... Um the difference between those who have and those who have not um, are, oh, I just lost myself on the voice, but I'm back. Um, so the difference between those that have and have not is is um, pretty broad. So I'm glad to hear that that's lessening a little bit. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about, you, you have on your bio um, discussion about AI, and that is something everybody's talking about. And to tell you the truth, I'm going to be honest, I honestly don't. I think I understand it, but I'm not so sure I could talk about it for too long a time. Um, could you tell us a little bit about AI and what's everybody's worried about machines taking over or whatever they're worried about? Yeah, I, and I think um, somewhat with good reason. And we don't need oh. uh, uh, artificial general intelligence like sentient AI that's conscious of itself and uh, you know, an astronaut saying, Hal, open the shuttle pod doors like in uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. <laughs> we, we don't need uh, artificial uh, uh, super intelligence, which is like uh, AI that's much more uh, powerful than all human brains on Earth um, to have issues. Narrow AI can create all kinds of problems. Um, some of them could be just because you can give AI a task and it will relentlessly produce that, pursue that task, um, and it may not have an ethical framework at how it does it. Mm. Um, and and so we've already we've already seen this. Like if you turn a machine on, it'll just run endlessly if you didn't anticipate where it should stop or what its guardrails should be. Um, and it's also in more subtle ways. Uh, creating issues. Like, for instance, the FAA is now telling pilots to start flying their planes again because they've basically been babysitting uh, pilots, which are kind of a form of AI uh, in a very specialized way um, for so long that their skills at flying have basically atrophied from from lack of use, right? So um, the, some, of the, some of the issues are not just like uh, a, a, a whole army of sentient robots with AI, uh, you know, uh, taking over the planet, but just uh, that we we are becoming ever more dependent on these very complex systems that we don't fully understand. So it's sort of the unintended consequences problem, even with in narrow usage that is of such concern. 
What's getting me nervous is that our Congress thinks it should be able to control this, but as you just said, who's who's got the capability to understand it? Um, I'm not sure the folks we send to Washington do. Um, but, so that's a little bit of a problem for me. Um, but anyway, um, thank you for that. I don't even like cr- um, cruise control on my car. I just like to drive the car, so I can relate to the uh, to the um, airplane example. So um, I have a little note that says that you're affiliated with Vermont Future Now, which supports mm-hmm. students here within the state. Could you talk a little bit about that initiative? Yeah, over the years, I've been very, very concerned about the direction our state has been heading educationally. Uh, We raised uh, four kids uh, here through their teenage years. They're all in college now. Uh, And uh, they enjoyed uh, the Vermont's long history of school choice. And to me, school choice is not just like uh, an entitled sense of, well, I want my kid to go here versus there. It's it's really understanding that schools should function in diverse ways. Like, ideally, in my view, no two schools should be exactly the same. And many people seem to think from a policy standpoint that standardization of everything is where it's at. But humans are very non-standard. <laughs> That we, is are, true. we are very different. We learn very differently. We learn in very different environments. So one of the one of the best things about Vermont and why we picked the town we were in was because it had school choice. And we, we sent our kids to different schools as a result of it. And they thrived finding the right environment for them. And, it, of course, this creates also a bit of healthy competition between schools. Uh, to really like not stay like kind of stuck in their inertia or, or the status quo to always try to improve what they offer. And in that mix, of course, is our wonderful public schools and our independent schools. But we really need to allow them to approach this with uh, some design diversity uh, in terms of how they, they tackle education. I would like to see it expand at the state. I think it's yeah. the, perhaps the number one thing we could do to yeah. improve educational outcomes. Shouldn't talk politics, but I agree with you. I was just going to ask Asher to explain interinclusion.org, but I'm going to read something to you first because um, I just don't want you to think I actually talk like this. It says, interinclusion.org is a nonprofit, multi-layered educational initiative celebrating the convergence between contemporary arts and science and timeless Jewish wisdom. The inter-inclusion collaborative platform will revolutionize how we access new experiences through a liquid architecture of creative interactions based on social media, multi-user gaming, online video, and e-learning technologies. You have got to check this website out. I had more fun with it yesterday. Um, Asher, Go ahead. I just this is so fascinating this website and what you've managed to put into it all. How did this get started and what is its purpose? So, uh the website started about uh, 13 14 years ago. It's actually in uh the process of a major upgrade and rebuild right now, but um we really felt that we wanted to share uh Jewish timeless Jewish wisdom with the whole world. And that the best way to create connection between people of different mindsets with different backgrounds and different experiences is to be able to translate those ideas 
into all the different languages of the world, which are not necessarily using like French, German, Russian, Swahili, etc. It's more like the people who speak the language of business or politics or of literature or of architecture or of uh, gender theory or cinema, whatever it might be. Those are the world languages where people try to uh, come to terms with life and what it means. Um, so we have hundreds and hundreds of articles that go through those various disciplines, everything from poetry to quantum physics to uh, uh, economic theory and uh, interior design. We have lots and lots of articles uh, on there in all those different areas. And then we're also looking at, at different ways to uh, create edutainment where learning can be fun and people can really uh, – uh, engage this type of material, not in a sort of dry, pedantic way, but where it's exciting. And we've just seen uh, in today's day and age that there's so much learning going on using new media uh, technology, that you'll have uh, millions and millions of views of a complex subject, let's say, on YouTube, if it's, if it's put together in an exciting and engaging way, and that people want to be much more uh, interactive. Well, it's it's really an amazing website, and I hope everybody goes to it because they were talking about multi layers. The more you click on, the more comes comes up for you to read and to learn about. And um, I used to live. I told Ash I used to live in in Brooklyn on Park, 188 Parkside Avenue between Ocean and Flatbush, and um, it was uh, was that a Jewish neighborhood or what? And um, I had the I had the most amazing. I don't know if people know me. I'm used to be six foot. I'm now a mere five ten. I think I've shrunk. But back in that neighborhood, I sort of stuck out like a like a sore thumb um, because I was taller than most folks in the neighborhood. And I had I had the most fabulous time in my life living there and um, getting to know the store owners and and everything because people followed kosher um, regulations that each store was was based on separating meat from eggs and, and cheese. And um, it was just amazing how they would say stuff just, you know, it was never a hello. It was always hello and then um, followed by something that would get me through the day. And I just learned to appreciate and love um, the Jewish way of looking at life and um, just – how they deal with issues and problems. I, I just loved it. I, I should have taken notes and written a book because it was really great. So I envy well, you. That, like, I'm sorry. I, I said that sounds like quite an experience. It was. It was great. I told you I got adopted by the two guys, the brothers who owned the, um, <clears throat> the soda shop, and that was an actual soda shop. And when I was pregnant, I used to I used to have to take the subway, and that did me in with the morning sickness. So every morning they would leave a a glass of Coke syrup for me to take and chug down before I went downstairs into the subway, and it and it managed to get me through to work. Um, so they took really good care of me, and um, I learned how to cook. Um, you should come over. I can actually cook a whole Jewish dinner, and. Um, um, and I just I loved it, so um, I envy you your your upbringing and uh, your background. Um, so I I wanted to talk about Asher. You I, you also deal a lot with um, early stage venture placements for small businesses for family businesses that want to start up. Um, can you kind of explain how that works and how you 
how you help these folks to to get started and hopefully uh, make them successful? Yeah, so I really enjoy um, interacting with companies at an early stage where you can add a lot of value to what they're doing. Somehow, once companies get on the you know the stock exchange, it's all about shareholder value and uh, adding uh, to their to their stock price. But mm. early on, you know, you can really guide something um, meaningfully to produce um, value all around, meaning that it's valuable to its customers, it's valuable to the world. I really see um, like venture capital as a tool for improving the world and solving some of our biggest problems. And that's where it's so exciting to me. So I look a lot for uh, deals that have this particular uh, like identifying promise and then um, where I can make connections or add insights to, uh, you know, accelerating and actualizing all of that, uh, you know, potentiality. That's great uh, because uh, it's very hard to get started in a business. If uh, I'm sure if you don't have somebody to help you and help you with the pitfalls, um, because it's quite a risk to start a business. But if you're successful, the rewards are right there and then some. So, Absolutely. That, that's why today's day and age, like one of the things we all have to learn, uh, which is not necessarily taught in school, is the value of failure. <laughs> uh, anyone who's an entrepreneur like knows how to fail and like maybe fail frequently and learn from those mistakes. And the failure is actually part of the success. It's why some business schools now do uh, – improvisational acting with their students to teach them what it's like to fail, like very publicly, wow. the whole audience, uh, so that you will have the anti-fragility and resilience and grit to be able to like go out there and, and stay at it with whatever your new venture might be. That is that is so true because, it, you know, you read about schools that give all the kids participation awards. Really? Um, let them go out in the real world, and um, uh, that doesn't work that way. You don't get thanked for just showing up. You get thanked for producing. So that's yep. – uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> There are consequences otherwise, yes. Exactly. Like, well, what do you mean? Where's my Where's my reward? Um, that's real, that's really sad. You know, I also, um, because we've got a few minutes before the break, uh, we could start talking now and then pick up on it afterwards. You and your wife have a, um, um, a consulting firm, a consulting business that you do, um, in your home, actually. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Um, I would love to meet her someday, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. done. I'll cook, I'll cook you my matzo ball soup and I'll come over. So <laughs> anyway, tell us a little bit about what you and your wife do, because I'm sure people approach you all the time for advice and help. And there you are. Yeah. So I, I, I have the good fortune of, uh, of working with my wife on a multitude of projects, which is wonderful. And we really like working together. We, we you know, 25 years and going, 26 years and going, and we're still uh, working together just fine. Uh, we don't get sick of each other. So <laughs> that's wonderful. But, uh, we, we do, uh, 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 speaking together, where we go out speaking, we actually run the inter-inclusion website together, and and most recently, we've done um, retreats and learning programs here uh, in, on our property uh, in Danby, Vermont, 
Hmm. And we've brought in stuff uh, for marriage counseling and also for sort of like uh, uh, coaching related to dating uh, and relationships. We're finding a lot of people, they've been dating like 10, 15 years and they're still like not settling down, but they want to. And uh, they're sort of risk adverse and don't know how to how to like uh, either commit or, no. or they're not finding the right people. Uh, and so we've helped them through a lot of that. And now we're actually taking uh, a really strong look at how to help people with entrepreneurship and huh. even like find future jobs, which include trades. Um, uh, to, anyone can tell you here in Vermont that like we have an enormous demand for people who can do uh, plumbing, electrical work, carpentry. Right. It's really hard to get a people. I waited like four months to yep. like get yep. someone out. Uh, and th- those can be very lucrative pursuits, and they're not uh, easily replaced by robots uh, or artificial <laughs> intelligence. Right. Um, so we're really trying to focus on the on the, the especially the younger generation, uh, post high school or college, and help them to understand where they might. Uh, go for the jobs of the future that could be really good, especially if they want to stay in Vermont, which we need more youth to stay in Vermont. So that's something we've, we've really been focusing on. That's right. I have to tell you, Asher, and I'm sure you know Ben Kinsley and, and I are passionate about tech schools. For years, it was the place where you sent kids who couldn't make it in public school. And, but there, as you said, there is such a need and the pay is fabulous for plumbers and, um, all the things that you mentioned, the hands-on folks. Um, I, I think finally people are realizing the importance of, of tech centers. Uh, when I was commissioner of labor, we would work with construction companies and they'd say, I just want somebody who, you know, who can work with their hands, I'll teach them, I'll send them to school, but just give me somebody who's interested um, working with their hands because, you know, we need it. And um, I'm glad to hear you say that uh, that's an important part of uh, of who we are in, in this economy. A- absolutely. I, I think that there's a lot of value in um, what can be achieved for a fraction of the cost of some of the traditional four-year uh, college envir- uh, environments, which have a lot of perks and, and frills associated with them and also enormous price tags yes. you know, approaching $1,000 a year mark. <laughs> You've got four kids in college now? I have four kids in college. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> So, so there, there, there's a lot of uh, bang for your buck with uh, some of these uh, technical college careers. Um, they are sort of like uh, the the sleeper hits of today sometimes, and I, it's not uncommon for me to to encounter people in Vermont, um, and they, you know they they went to law school and they invested in years and years. And they they have all this debt, and they're not doing as well right. as the person who went to a technical school and is an electrician. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of it's supply and demand. Uh, we have a great need for these kind of jobs, and they're very versatile, and there's uh, sometimes less of a time commitment and cost associated yep, with right. them. Uh, so I, I'm very uh, excited that we have this and want to encourage people to look into them. That's great. Yeah, because well, it's two years mostly for uh, most tech schools. And um, obviously, because it's two, not four, I'm sure it's half the price, if, if not more than, than half or less than half. But, um, 
it's just, and we all are going to need plumbing for the rest of our lives. And you're right, robots can't do it. So it's a good field to be in. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad I think people are finally realizing how important this is. Um, so uh, we've, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left, Asher. Is there, uh, I, I just wanted to make sure we, we covered everything that you would like folks to know about you. Um, and how do they get in touch with you if they would like to chance an opportunity to work with you? So I, I think certainly uh, people could reach out to me uh, through Campaign for Vermont, and okay. anything could be routed, routed my way or through my uh, website, Inner Inclusion. Um, but I, I love speaking to Vermonters about contemporary issues. And, uh, you know, together with Ben Kinsley, we really feel that Campaign for Vermont is a uh, is like venture public policy, like innovative ideas and thinking that can really – tackle some of our most seemingly intractable problems, whether it be uh, the eutrophication of our lakes and streams, where you've got like the the runoff that's turning them green. You may notice that you're <laughs> swimming in certain parts of Vermont, like right. great new technologies that can actually transform these waterways back into being like clear, swimmable, drinkable uh, kind of bodies of water. Um, they're coming up, and it's only getting better. Right? Like you have a huge problem, you need kind of a huge solution with a different kind of uh, thinking behind it. Um, and same thing with uh, like power throughout the state. Taking mm-hmm. really uh, uh, a hard look at battery technologies and where those are going, and how we're going to see huge leaps in innovation that's going to make it uh, uh, much easier to live here in the cold of winter. And, and not deal with the power outages or to uh, have access to uh, uh, cheaper electricity. Uh, very exciting things that are going on, things that can happen here in Vermont, and Vermont can really reach uh, beyond to the entire world. You know, we have such a great brand yep. as a state uh, that we should be um, really the incubator for lots of uh, – green technology, sustainable technologies that people like. And, um, and one of the best things we could do as a state, and I hope our policymakers will really consider this, is just clear the ground for people to want to come here and do these kind of uh, startup ventures. In my mind, the best thing would be like, you want to relocate a business here that's going to tackle a problem we all care about, like uh, you get a tax haven for X number of years, mm-hmm. and we as a state option. Uh, that technology to be deployed first here at a discount once it's ready for the prime time uh, in order to get people to see this as the place for the experimental startup tackling these kind of issues. That's a great. I was just thinking my town of Berlin has a stabilization project where you get um, tax uh, breaks for uh, for five years, I believe. And it's mm-hmm. because you came, you're settling in Vermont, you're, you're um, developing a business and uh, uh, hiring people. I mean, there's just such a benefit to all of this. I hope that they uh, listen, pay attention, because we sure need folks here in Vermont. Um, when, can I, this is so off the, the topic here, but why do you think we are so um, devoid of workers. I mean, even in Maine, where I've spent the summer mostly in Maine, and every restaurants are closed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday because they can't find. Where are the people? Do you know, Asher? Right. So I, I would say it's a combination of factors. Usually, we look at like a whole constellation of of uh, 
uh, correlated phenomena that could cause these things. But one of the biggest ones, I think, is this benefits cliff problem that uh, we have. Uh. I'm all about helping people. Uh, I really, really believe in helping people, but we've made it an all or nothing scenario where basically people can't work if they're going to be assisted in any kind of way. Um, and we really should have no barriers to work whereby if a person goes out and gets a job, if we really want to have a middle class, like they should still enjoy certain uh, amount of benefits that taper off right, very slowly right. and don't go over a cliff. And I think that will uh, mobilize populations that currently aren't working. And, and you actually see that all throughout America, that there are these pockets where people say, you got to get us off this dependency here because people are are uh, also deeply affected psychologically and their, their overall wellness decline hmm. when they don't feel like they have something productive to do. Um, work actually helps make people very happy and fulfilled much of the time. It's like one right. of those counterintuitive things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Work makes me feel better. What is that? But you yeah, just, well. you just came up, you, the, those eight uh, videos we saw, it talked about, um, where is my quote here about not working, not having to work? You put it in your um, in your videos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what well, was work? Work find work in the traditional sense is drudgery, misery, uh, right? Uh, like not self actualizing. What like when did our grandparents or great grandparents ever think that you could make a, a, a living as a a media influencer <laughs> or? And a comic or an amateur filmmaker or right. all, all these things today that are we associate with fun and and they make money uh, were never part of work. So like the drudgery of work is being taken out largely and people are able to do more and more fulfilling uh, types of things. And I think that's where the new job creation will be. Yeah. Artificial intelligence, robotics will take a lot of jobs that we currently do that are really kind of boring and repetitive. And it's going to replace them with jobs that are experiential, that are meaningful, and and that are accessible to lots of people, no matter what their interests are or their educational background. There'll be a lot of new job creation. Just jobs will look different as they have been inching along here for, for many decades. Well, I was very sad to hear you say benefits, Cliff, again, because... I've got to go jump back in that issue for a couple of years in the legislature. That's all they talked about was to fix the benefit cliff. And obviously they haven't. Um, maybe not so dramatically that it, that people understand the, the benefits of not staying home and of working. But that's all we talked about in the legislature for a couple of years. And maybe we should bring that topic back. I, I think so. To me, that would be one of the most empowering things huh. that we have. We to give people mobility, not just vertical mobility where they can climb up, but also, uh, you know, lateral mobility. Right. They have to be able to move from place to place, uh, like from from another state into Vermont or from Vermont to somewhere else within Vermont. Like we, we need those capabilities yep. and we need as much flexibility brought into our system as possible. And it's really gridlocked right now, unfortunately. Gary. Well, Asher, we have come to the end of the show. I can't thank you enough for coming on. I have had so much fun, and um, I will report back on the eight videos. Um, I think they are fabulous, so thank you. Um, say thank you to Asher Crisp, um, our futurist. Thank you so much. Thank you, Asher. We'll, we'll talk to you soon, and stay tuned um, because we have uh, Karen Curley, who's going to be talking 
about um, September being Suicide Prevention Month and all that they are doing at uh, Central Vermont um, Mental Health. Mm-hmm.